Thank you so much for your invitation to be here and your welcome back into this community. The two years that we spent here in this community were quite significant for each one of the four of our family members. Even my son, he's baptized here and remembers that and has a picture of it up in his, his bedroom. Um, so it's nice to be back. I actually want to share with you my favorite all-time church memory that happened here in this church. And some of you may remember it if... Um, if you were here then, and for those who weren't, let me tell you the story. Mark was preaching, and he was over here. He pulled, some of you are already remembering this. He had, I don't even know how it happened now that I'm up here with one of these things on, but somehow his mic wire, there was a massive vase here full of flowers, full of water, and his mic got attached to one of the stems of the flowers, and so every time he would step forward, the whole vase would go, and then he'd step back, and it would sort of joggle back into place. And he did this several times, and as we all started to notice in the congregation, we all go, and then, and I was sitting right there, and someone behind me was like, go do something about it. And I said, I'm just the pastor's wife. I'm not supposed to do stuff like that. But at one point, he took a big step forward, and I thought, it's going to go. It's going to be all over. So I jumped up. And you know how your brain does a funny thing where it thinks that if you go like this, nobody will see you. So I went running up the steps like this. And of course, everybody saw me. And Mark saw me running at him like a bull, charging at him. And he thought, what have I done? <laughs> and uh, when I arrived at the front, we could tell he stepped back, of course. And um, we realized what had happened. He thought all sorts of things went through his mind as he panicked about, you know, my fly down, I think is one of the things. He's just like, what's going on here? But I think the tension in the room that we'd been holding for the, how the, that sermon just exploded. And I think it must have been at least three minutes of full belly laughter for many of us. Anyways, I carry that as just a really uh, fun memory from this time, but also just um, unexpected joy in the service. Um, and uh, as I was coming here, I was just remembering that, and that happened. Mark um, says to say hello. He's sorry you he couldn't be here because Mala has a profession of faith at First CRC. So he's there, or a class for that. So you're in a series on what the kingdom of God looks like. And as I was praying towards this service back in December, actually, uh, I had this sense that I should be preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And then I went to look at your preaching schedule, and I realized actually somebody was going to be preaching on that last week. So um, I suppose I hope that whatever it was that the Spirit was prompting in me, you received last week in that sermon. And instead, today, we're going to be thinking about the resurrection and this particular resurrection story from John 21. Um, Jesus spoke about the kingdom and lived out the kingdom in his life, and that's where I most often think about what the kingdom looks like. Um, but we can also think about his death and his resurrection as places that further deepen how we understand the kingdom of God. The resurrection itself is this sign of the kingdom, right? So when we spend time with the resurrection, what do we see about the kingdom of God? Um, in fact, Michael Bird notes that uh, John, especially here in 20 and 21, um, has this sort of very fulsome picture of the resurrection, several really full stories about what the resurrection uh, resurrected Christ looks like and, and does, and that in doing that, he's kind of distinguishing between the life, the death, and the resurrection. He's saying, Here's, there's enough here just in the resurrection for us to begin uh, seeing what, kingdom, uh, what the kingdom looks like Christ has brought. 
So in other words, the resurrection can teach us something unique about the kingdom of, of God if we spend time with it. I'm going to actually, I don't know if the, um, yeah, the Bible passage is going to come up. Okay, so I'm going to, I want to read the story, tell the story, and I actually would love to ask you if you feel comfortable to call out some of the things when we're done reading the passage. What do you notice about the kingdom of God in this passage? So if you feel comfortable, if nobody says anything, I'll know you're not and we can, we can move on, but I thought we could try that out. Um, okay, so here's the story. Afterward. Now, when we start with afterward, we know, okay, well, what happened before? So what happens before? Well, the women arrive at the empty tomb, and then the disciples do. Jesus appears to Mary. Jesus appears to his disciples in the closed room, and Thomas uh, is uh, his sort of uh, his famous affirmation of faith in spite of doubt uh, happens. And then we've got this. So afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, but all that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't recognize who he was. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did that, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple to whom, whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish because they weren't far from shore, about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and then did the same thing with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So as you read that or you hear that story, what do you see of the kingdom of God? What do you think the kingdom of God looks like as you read that passage? Anything at all? Anything you notice? Yeah. It's the same, but different. Yeah, it's the same but different, a strange familiarity, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Right, right, bring all your fish, but I've already got some for you. <laughs> yeah, so maybe the work is still necessary, but also there's enough if you don't catch any. I've got enough for you, yeah. Abundance, yeah. Right. 
Physics and mathematics are important. This is good. These are not things I had thought of so far. <laughs> it's great. Thanks, Sue. Anything else you notice about the kingdom of God here? What's that? Sorry? It's hospitable. Yeah, there's a hospitality and a relationality there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great. Joyful anticipation that you see in Simon Peter rushing through the... Yeah, I'm going to say a little bit about that because I'm really drawn to that as well. Okay, I think at a very basic level, there's lots of things to say here, but I think at a very basic level, when I read this, I see the resurrection is God's affirmation of life and of this life and of our lives, right? Sometimes I think our imaginations can be shaped more by death than by life. What I mean by that is... We can feel worn down by the, the actual real deaths uh, that surround us, by our own impending deaths. Also by the metaphorical deaths, right, of relationships, of belonging, of faith, of vocation, these different deaths that we carry with us. Uh, and this can shape the way that we live and move in the world, right, that this is shaping our imagination, what we see. But Easter and this moment, Easter is a call to wake up from our slumbering, to hear the risen Christ call out to us across the water and to see then the kingdom of God alive all around us. So let's go back to the story of this text then and the time of this text. So before Jesus, the Christ, there had been many Christs, right? Many Christ followers of those many Christs. And each of these revolutionaries met a similar fate. They were caught up, they were strung on crosses, They were tortured and beaten. Uh, If they were of a higher status, they were beheaded instead. And in one year alone, there were 2,000 revolutionaries who were killed, crucified in this way. They were crucified, they were died, they died and were buried. And when they were buried, what happened to the people who followed them, who survived them? Well, they realized that they had abandoned the real world for a dream all this time. Right? They had had this dream, they had followed, and now as they see the end of that dream coming, they slunk away from the death, did their best to slip back into their old jobs, their old ways, their old families, routines, going back to reality, hopefully unnoticed that they had been gone all this time. They hoped nobody would remember their foolish ramblings about the Messiah having arrived. They hoped news wouldn't spread too fast of their leader's death so that they could regain a sense of normalcy, composure, in their ordinary lives, and of course hiding from authorities. So nobody would know that they were not just good citizens living ordinary lives within the Roman Empire. Their imaginations uh, shaped by this death may have made them come to a place of thinking oppressors win again. That's the way it always goes. Revolutionary dreams die and disillusioned revolutionaries are reintegrated quietly. So in this passage in John 21, we see the disciples of Jesus following a really similar pattern to what many before had done, right? They, even at his death or before his death, they try to slip away. Let's get back and let's pretend, pull back from this thing that we had thought was going to be something new. Let's slip back into and integrate, reintegrate unnoticed. And here's Simon Peter back doing what he was doing before Jesus called him, back fishing. 
He's patched up his discarded fishing boat. He's gone back to making a living. You know, keep busy, slip back into the ordinary world. And, well, there's not much else to do. You guys want to join me? So Nathaniel, James, and John, they join him, hiding in the disguise of just being good workers, ordinary people, doing ordinary things, keeping their hands busy. I think many of us who have experienced the resurrection life of Christ know what this is, know what this experience is, to lose sight of that life that woke our hearts up and to wonder if we've had it wrong this whole time. In fact, Larry, some of the questions you asked in your prayer say that, speak about that to me. So all night they leave their nets out, but early in the morning they haven't caught anything and they notice this figure on the shore. And he calls out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? Shoot, it's friends, someone who knows us, but we don't recognize it. Is it so obvious who we are, trying to reintegrate and be quietly in our work? No, we haven't. And then he gives them the strangest directive, put your nets over on the other side of the boat where there is the same water, and you'll find something different there. And this is that familiar strangeness, the familiar strangeness of... Jesus, when he was alive, asked us to do this once before. He asked us to leave our fishing and follow him. This was actually the moment when we came awake to the dream, and it's happening again. It doesn't make sense now, though, because that dream is dead. Maybe they throw the nets over the other side without knowing why they feel drawn to repeat this action that no longer makes sense now that the Messiah is gone. Or maybe they have a nervous pit in their stomach, this feeling of, is this possible? The unlikely possibility, could this be another miracle? And in the end, what do they have to lose? So they do it. And immediately, in a way that defies the logic of natural law, the water on this side of the boat, and only on this side of the boat, yields nets full of fish. And in that foggy moment, John knows this is Jesus on the beach. This is Jesus. It must be. Who else knows them so well? Who else has so much authority over the waters and creatures? Who else uses their power in this kind of way? The figure on the beach must be Jesus. There's no one else like him. And this is not the time to start thinking back to Old Testament prophecies and and trying to connect the dots. This is not the time to start thinking, who was Jesus really? This is not the time to start working out the significance of, of this reality. This is the time to just tie up your clothes and jump out of the boat into the water and rush to the shore. This is what resurrection time is about. This is the time to jump into the lake and run splashing toward the shore, the time to remember in your body, in their bodies, what it is like to hug and embrace Jesus, the flesh and blood Jesus. This is the time to remember what it's like to have that certain hope in the life and now in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's Easter again. It's the imaginations being reawakened to life. I love this story, like I mentioned, Kim. I love, I'm really drawn to Peter's full-bodied, enthusiastic response, love of Jesus. Um, He's had these days of confusion and slinking around, and then he hears Jesus in the fog, and he's woken up, and he's splashing awkwardly through the water towards Jesus. I just think it's a beautiful metaphor sometimes of our, our sort of 
going and moving towards Jesus as well. Whatever their response, I mean, you notice the others don't always have, they don't have the same response. So their response is kind of like, okay, we'll be right there. We're just going to finish with the boats and the fish, right? So there were different responses to Jesus. Um, and maybe some of us relate more to that than to the, the Peter, Peter movement. Um, but what they do know, all of them, is in a moment they, didn't, they hadn't wasted their lives on a dream. They hadn't wasted their lives. They had actually come awake to the real reality when Jesus called them that first time. They hadn't been dreaming. They had come awake to the kingdom of God as a real presence in the world. And they had been invited in to, to participate in something that was real. It wasn't a revolutionary dream, it was reality. So when the frenzy has died down, it's time to sit quietly on a beach at sunrise and eat breakfast with Jesus. What has just happened? Strange, out of this world. But in this quiet moment of eating together, we see the hospitality, that what has happened is for this world in the most profound way. This is what we do with Jesus. We sit and we eat and we talk. I mean, can you imagine how surreal that breakfast must have been? How quietly ordinary, anticlimactic, with a bit of a buzz around what has just happened, but we're just gonna sit here quietly and eat fish together. We're back to breaking bread together. We're back to eating fish. And at the same time, Jesus' death and resurrection has changed everything. So Jesus has broken this pattern of failed Christs, failed revolutionaries. He's even broken the pattern of successful revolutionaries, and he's created a whole new pattern of his own. This is a pattern in which life takes up more space than death. A pattern in which the life of the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus Christ wakes us up, brings us alive to a new reality. So I began today by asking you about the what you saw the passage saying about uh, the kingdom of God. And I just want to come back to that and offer a few things. And they, they resonate with some of the things that you've said as well and noticed, uh, which makes sense. Because anytime someone comes up to preach, there is more collective knowledge and wisdom in the room than there isn't a single person up front. So if we were all able to offer our interests, we would have had an amazing sermon before I even began. Uh, but in the first place, just the kingdom God, of God is an affirmation of the life of ordinary things, which is, to me, really beautiful. And um, uh, it, it's a centering, calming thing to, to know that the event took place at the lake, that it included fishing and eating, all these things that have happened repeatedly in Jesus' ministry, you'll remember the feeding of the 5,000, going on to the lake to pray, the original moment when Jesus called his disciples, uh, the Last Supper, and so many other meals, right? This moment is pulling all those things together. They're all happening again in this one little iconic moment, right? This symbolic moment. So in this story, where all these different ordinary moments from their time together are referenced, so to speak, Jesus is affirming the kingdom of God isn't abolishing the way that we've been together. The kingdom of God is actually, uh, it's affirming that life. It's actually about that life. It's about these ordinary tasks like fishing and these ordinary rituals like eating together and these ordinary relationships where we cook for one another. 
that the kingdom of God is an affirmation of the life of ordinary things in this good world and in this embodied life. Actually, last night, um, Mark and I were coming home from uh, a fundraising dinner for Regent, and we took home a student with us, we're not to our home, but dropped her off on the way back uh, from Korea. And we just chatted with her about this. I just asked her, what do you think about this passage? And the thing that she said was she just loved the embodiment in the passage. I thought, yeah, that's one of the things I love here too. The sort of the affirmation of the way God has made us in this creation as fully embodied humans. And then secondly, just how the kingdom of God is an affirmation not just of, of human embodiment, but also Christ's communion with creation and all of creation. So uh, he knows where they should throw their nets. He directs the fish. He calms the waves. He starts the fire. And I think we can think of this um, in the sort of theological terms of Jesus being Lord over creation. I also really like the idea of Jesus being deeply in tune with creation, knowing its movements, because it's the creator. He's the creator of it. Um, so he can direct it, and he can shift it. That's, that's another thing that I see about the kingdom of God here. And then the third thing is just that the kingdom of God is a leap of faith. <laughs> you know, it's easy to be in a space where you think, am I, have I been dreaming, or am I, is this really the reality? Uh, it's maybe a jump into the water sort of faith. To participate in it, you know, we can hear the voice of Jesus, and we have to start moving before we've even fully comprehended it before we've even fully rationalized why and who and what it is we're doing. Because we know and we trust the one who's speaking. N.T. Wright puts it this way, John's gospel ends with newfound faith, but it is faith that must now go out into a new world, a risky resurrection faith facing a new day and must attempt new tasks without even knowing in advance where it will all lead. So Jesus calls back his disciples, including us, when we slink away, fearing that it is faith that must now die, that it is a failed dream. He calls us to renew our hope, to follow him, to repeat his pattern in which we let die those things that deal in death, that are in us, and instead we let life shape our imaginations and lives, our habits, our relationships, the whole of us. It's this invitation to wake up to the possibilities of life now that Jesus has physically and in history risen from the dead. So the question is how <laughs> and can we live like people who have risen with Christ? Can we be launched back into the ordinary work of the world, fully alive? And I want to finish actually with a story that I find, I'm, I'm a bit of a weeper. You probably already noticed I, was try, I, I weep a lot when things feel very significant to me. So apologies ahead of time. But this story, uh, it, it kind of gets me every time um, because it's a very realistic uh, personal response to this story. So Juanita Rasmus tells her experience of a sudden and debilitating depression that lasted a year. And it was the year in which she could barely get out of bed. And she interprets her experience as she writes through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. And her words really ring true for me, so I thought I'd just quote her here. My resurrection wasn't just like Jesus's. 
It was a lot of first and second days. It wasn't a third day resurrection. In reality, it's been an everyday resurrection. Every day, finding that there is something that has died in me and finding that there is new life in the exchange of whatever has died. While not all of my resurrections have occurred in three days, I do know what it is to rise again and to live in ways I had never imagined. So, whatever day you're on right now, know this, that for those of us who sit in the shadow of death, Christ's light will shine bright as day, and life will have the final word. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.